What's up, everybody? I'm Charlie Marlowe. That's Brendan Schaefer. This is Low Hanging Fruit. I think it's episode four. I'll check on that. But Brendan, it's the time of year. Yeah, let's let's be honest. It's the time of year where there ain't much going on. We need spring training to happen. We need pitchers and catchers to report. I'm not going to talk about Matt Carpenter, the 26th man on the roster for the 87th straight day. So we decided let's do a mailbag. I put it out there on Twitter, Brendan, and man, we got a lot of a lot of responses, a lot of questions, a lot of comments. That's good to see. Yeah, and, and you know we're we're a little starved for content, so we're appreciative of of people kind of reaching out. Some of the comments pretty humorous, but we kind of said, hey, one size fits all. We're going to go through all of these and. Maybe some of them will be able to pontificate upon a, a little more than others, but uh, I, I think everybody that kind of chimed in is gonna gonna have their voice heard. So that'll be good. Yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna probably read all of them. I'm starting at the bottom because it's easier for me as I scroll backwards on Twitter. So here we go. Boom. This is just I haven't done any research. Shocking. I didn't even edit any of them out. I'm just I'm gonna read them unless they're just awful. So There's the nothing heinous, hopefully, but I think people were right. pretty respectful. I will skip. I'll skip the bad ones. I don't okay. think any of them were that. No, bad. I don't. Okay, first one. Nothing I saw was. Yeah. Okay. From Billiken, Kevin N. Right out of the gate. When does Ollie get fired? Time to move on. He has no leadership skills, Brendan. That's the question or comment. Go ahead. This is going to be a long show, isn't it? Um. So I think we've kind of touched a little bit on that. Of like this year matters, and it matters not only for Ollie but for. John Mozeliak and in kind of the, the build of the roster and the, the direction of the payroll. Like, I think it matters in a lot of ways. Would Ollie get fired if they have another repeat of April? Like they go 10 and 19. I don't know. Maybe they would be pretty aggressive in that regard. I feel like though, even if it's a rudderless ship middle of the season, you still get a few months to kind of ease your way in. Um, but then let's say they're not dreadful, but they're not great. They're kind of somewhere in the middle. I think you let that season play out. You let his contract play out. And then it's not like if they've made the decision that, hey, we're going to move on from Ollie Marmel because you win 80 games and it's just kind of a middle of the pack type of year for the Cardinals. I think it's a lot easier to do that after the season and say, hey, we let this contract play out. Last couple of seasons didn't go the way we wanted. And maybe we're going to move in a new direction. Um, I, I think short of a, a winning season, that's probably the result, at least in my opinion, Charlie. I'm not sure how you see it. It's just it feels like it's easier to do with a guy when he doesn't have a long-term contract. You're not actively firing him so much as you are, hey, thanks for your service, but maybe we're not renewing your deal if this season doesn't go the right direction. Yeah, I think it makes sense that the Cardinals have done what they're doing right now. Ali does not deserve to be fired yet. I, I think that's fair to say. He does not deserve to get an extension. He had one good year. He had one really bad year. Let's prove it in year three. And maybe you'll appreciate this analogy, but I think about it kind of like the way I thought about Eli Drinkwitz in football, Mizzou football, entering last fall. Eli Drinkwitz, I think, surprised people in 2020. COVID had a nice year, mediocre after that, and it was basically proven. You know, I think it was fair to say entering Mizzou's football season in 2023 that Eli Drinkwitz does not deserve to be fired, but he also at this point doesn't deserve a big-time extension. Prove it. He did that. He absolutely did that. Now he deserves the extension. Huge season. Ali has the same opportunity. I think that's fair. If Ali has a nice year, he gets the extension. He deserves it. If they have a really bad year, he's gone. As we've talked about a couple times, if he has that middle year, 84 wins, no playoffs, that's when it gets interesting. 
What what do you think would happen in that event? Like 84 specifically, let's say 86 is the last wild card. Cardinals fall two games short. You've got Yadier Molina kind of lurking around because everybody knows he wants to be a big league manager. And unsurprisingly, he wasn't necessarily ready to take the time away from his family and, and, and the other things he wants to do in retirement to be part of the full-time staff this year. Said, yeah, I'll get involved, but you know, it's, it's going to kind of be on my terms. I think for a manager role, he'd be ready to take that leap because that comes with more cachet, more power, more responsibility. And I think he would probably welcome that. But what do you think happens at 84 wins? Do the Cardinals make that move or is 84 enough to say, Hey, we played all right. And Ollie Marmel is a guy that we still believe in. It's impossible to say, but I'm curious if you have a take on what you predict would happen in that case. I really don't have a great answer because the Cardinals are so measured in what they do. I think other franchises would for sure fire Ollie. The Cardinals are maybe one of the few that wouldn't, but the Yachty Descalzo piece changes the conversation. I, I don't have a great answer. You know, we, we have talked about this before. I'm not, I'm not trying to move on. Uh, I don't know, but that's the, that's the great question that we're going to basically tackle as the year goes on. Hopefully the Cardinals are really good. We don't have to worry about it. I don't want to wish for them being bad, but for content, it's almost better oh, to just Charlie. be right in the middle and be boring. You sly dog. Just don't be boring is all I'm saying. I okay. think that's fair. I think that's fair. I'll, I'll go ahead and answer it, though, since you kind of were wishy-washy. I, I think if the Cardinals win 84 games, and, and I am probably people that, that listen to my content or read my content probably think that I'm more on the pro Ollie side than, than neutral, but I think what the Cardinals would do short of a playoff appearance is – They'd frame it as we're just moving on. I think they would move on from Ollie short of a playoff appearance, right or wrong, whether I do it or not, isn't the question. I think the Cardinals would. I think they're they're going to sense that appetite from the fan base that, hey, we need to do something more substantive if, if we're going to continue to sell the organization as moving in the right direction. I would lean towards that as well. I'm going to go, let's say 55, 45 okay. or 60, 40. I That's agree fair. with you on that. Okay, next question. Jeff Junger. When will the Cardinals acquire a stud left-handed batter? Why do the Cardinals let the switch hitters continue to make outs from the left side of the plate? And I would just, uh, I'll start quick. I mean, Nolan Gorman, I know he's a little banged up. Brendan Donovan, um, Lars Newtbar, you got the switch hitters. You got Alec Burleson. Hey, we got Matt Carpenter now. By the way, I mean, the Cardinals have a lot of left-handed pop, right? I mean, some of those guys need to prove it and be healthy, but there's a lot of guys there that have big potential in my opinion. I think Gorman definitely from the pop perspective, like he's a power hitter. Lars Newtbar, I think, is a more complete hitter. He'll take his walks. He'll hit for for doubles power. How many home runs he'll hit maybe is a question, but that's those are two guys that you feel good about anchoring. I think more toward when I think of the middle of the lineup, like two through six, you could put them in spots and feel good about the production that they'll give in those spots. Donovan, more of an on-base guy. He'll He showed a little pop last year as well. So I think that's a fair characterization. But I also do see room for a left-handed power threat that could play center field. A guy who could mash right-handed pitching and play center field. Because when we say switch hitters, really we're talking about the two guys that the Cardinals are sort of pigeonholing into that center field battle this year, Tommy Edmond and Dylan Carlson. The problem is they're both better as right-handed hitters against left-handed pitching. They have the same kind of splits dynamic and they don't complement one another well from a plate profile perspective. It'd be nice if they, and I'm just going to say the name that he's not going to sign with the Cardinals. The Cardinals aren't going to pursue him at the price, but I've said for two years, I think Cody Bellinger in terms of what he does on the field 
you drop him into this roster and it would make every the lineup with Bellinger. You'd be able to do all the the right, left, right, left kind of stuff that you want. And I think it would be a really deep lineup. I know that's not the way that they're going to going to approach things because the offseason began with him wanting 200 million. I don't think he'll get that. He's still unsigned for for some reason. So I doubt he gets that. But it's going to be a, a sizable contract. I don't think the Cardinals are in the market for that. Uh, and then they would look at it and say, well, what do we do with Dylan Carlson and Tommy? Well, you could have traded one of those guys. And if you were going to be aggressive, you could have done all these things. That's a move that I think would be really compelling. It never will happen in a million years to answer the the question from the the the, the listener. I just don't. I just don't think the Cardinals are going down that road. No chance. And also, isn't it funny? What will they do with Dylan Carlson? And now it's Dylan Carlson's the fourth outfielder. You know, we a couple of years ago we we're like, what's going to happen with Dylan Carlson? And now the question is like, well, it's Dylan Carlson. He's a fourth outfielder, or we'll see what happens. Doesn't it feel like he's almost on? He's on the Tyler O'Neill track one year ahead with the distinction being that last year they told Tyler O'Neill, like you get your every opportunity to prove that, that you still belong here. And then he, you know, he failed at that and they traded him for, for peanuts. Carlson. They're basically like, yeah, you might play some. We'll see. Like there's no guarantees for Carlson's playing time. And like, I like Dylan Carlson. I was a big supporter of his last year. I'm not predicting big things from him this year because I think he's, behind the eight ball before they even go down to spring. It's not really fair to him, but from like a, a standpoint of, Hey guys being told that you're our guy and getting a chance. He's not really being told that right now. And I don't know what kind of impact that's going to have on his psyche. I hope I am wrong. Cause I really like the guy. I, I like him as a player. I like his skill set. but I think it's going to be difficult for him to maximize himself in the role that is at least plotted out for him as of today. I'm going to call an audible and, and briefly go away from the comments for a second, because you mentioned Tyler O'Neill. Did you happen to watch the interview of Tyler O'Neill on foul territory? No, I missed it. Recap it for me. Okay. So basically, I want to say it's about 20 minutes. Okay. It was maybe five days ago. So, folks, if you want to go back, foul territory, the show with AJ Przinsky and those guys. They have, you know, former players on the show and they have a bunch of I mean, they get all the players. So just recapping for anybody that didn't see it. Now, Tyler O'Neill was very professional. He did not. I would not say at all he threw Ali Marmol under the bus. But A.J. Brzezinski asked him a couple questions about everything that happened last year. And A.J. said, look, man, I think I'd have reacted. I'd have, I'd have, I'd have been really mad about that, blah, 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 blah. And um, so Tyler O'Neill says, yeah, I think I handled it the right way in, in the moment. He basically said that their relationship evolved into, and I'm, I think the, the exact quote was respect at arm's length. Yeah. Which is, which is not a lot. I mean, look, clearly – I don't love the dude. He doesn't love me, but he is my manager. I'm a player. Respect at arm's length. Then there was a follow-up question where, again, this is very subtle. And, and the question was about, you know, Tyler, what did you do in 2021 when you had your big year, eighth in the MVP and all that? And, and Tyler O'Neill did make, and I can't remember the exact way the question was asked. So people go, I'm not trying to mischaracterize it. He said something about the fact that the culture and the leadership that year was so great. Remember, that was 2021. That's the right. year they go on the 17-game winning streak. That's Mike Schilt as the manager. It's very subtle. I'm not trying to start something out of nothing. But if folks go watch that, there were a couple little subtle digs of Tyler O'Neill giving his perspective on the situation with Ali Mormol, which I think is very interesting. But it wasn't earth-shattering. But if you're a Cardinals fan, you should watch it. Yeah, and I think when it comes to like the culture conversations and the little nuggets that are dropped here and there, 
the immediate draw is going to be Schilt v. Ollie. Like, that's what the fan base is going to see and think about and when they're hearing these comments. I, I It could be deeper than that, though, right? And not so much as, like, deeper as there's a really big rift there that we didn't uncover. But, like, you know, I do think, and, and we hate to always go back to it, but you think about Yadier Molina. Yadier Molina was sort of like the captain of the clubhouse for a long, long time. And he was there in 21, wasn't there this past year. And so did the clubhouse, did did that ripple effect have such an impact that the dynamic was just different in there? I don't know. Maybe that's giving too much credit to one guy. But I think there are probably some other distinctions as well. You can think about leadership as well in terms of the coaching staff, right? You may not love Jeff Albert as a Cardinal fan. You may have wanted him gone. You got your wish. You, you may have had your varying thoughts about, you know, Mike Maddox isn't maximizing this staff, but it was a more green coaching staff top to bottom with a new bench coach as well that, you know, was was kind of thrust in last minute. So, like, you can make some other comparisons to 21 versus 23 that were different that weren't just the manager, uh, but kind of knowing how Tyler felt, I think he was relatively candid if he used that term respect at arm's length, but at the same time, uh, you know, you can kind of get a feel for maybe just where he would have been. And when your manager kind of undresses you within the first week of the season um, to, to get the respect at arm's length quote is probably about the best you're, you're going to hear as a result of that. Cause that was an awkward time and nobody wanted it to be that way. But once that cat was out of the bag, it, it sort of probably did at least for those two individuals have an impact on, on the way they were going to rebuild the relationship the rest of the year. Yeah, I think it was fair and true. But if you're having a beer with Tyler O'Neill, is he going to use different language? Probably, but he was a professional right. yeah. in this uh, setting. All right, next question. I'll just throw it right to you. This is from Jeebers99. Should the Cardinals trade for Manoa, Alec Manoa? Yeah, pending the price, I think so. But so with these questions, it's difficult because until a guy is actually traded, it's it's hard to say what his value is to the Blue Jays, right? Like if they if they keep him, that tells you that I'm sure they were willing to move him this offseason, but because they haven't, it's like, eh, they probably haven't gotten the offers they were looking for, or they they maybe view this guy's upside as being a little bit more worthwhile than the the, the players that are coming in, in in terms of trade. So I think to contextualize it, you'd have to almost throw out a name. Like, would you do Burleson for Manoa if you're John Mosellock? I don't know that that's an option for them, but you look at like the way they've stocked up on first base slash outfield types and left-handed hitters. You just rattle off a bunch of them. Is that a trade that could burn you if Manoa is just completely broken and we haven't seen the best of Burley yet and he's got so much team control attached? Perhaps. But like the upside of what if you get a, a capable starter who can strike out 200 guys? Like what if you fix him? So like if that's the range you're talking about, it's one thing. If the Blue Jays say, you know, we really need Tommy Edmond, we really need Brendan Donovan, you're like, all right, no wonder this guy hasn't been traded. I don't know if that is a, a fair way to answer the question, but it's always kind of within the context of, well, what's it going to cost you? By the way, what's is it Sagisi, Sagisi, Sagacy? Thomas Sagacy. Yes, sir. Thomas Sagacy. Okay, so – Luke McGill asks, or this is actually more of a statement. It says, Carp comes back with a fury, earns ABs, hits 20 dingers. Sagacy, Sagacy, performs so well he gets called up. Gibson, Gray, Mats, and Lynn are better than advertised. 200 innings for Miles. Goldie and the Nolans go 270, 30 bombs, and 90 RBI. Sell 3 million ticks again. I agree with that one. Playoff appearance. So real quick going through that. Carp comes back. I think he'll have a decent year. I'll, I'll go under on the 20 dingers. 
I think a lot uh, of this sounds optimistic, just off, yes. the, off the jump. It's very optimistic. Um, I, I could see I could see Lynn. I could see Matt. These guys just have to stay healthy. Yeah. Uh, Sonny Gray, I could actually see Sonny Gray coming back a bit, but that still means a good year. I mean, he had his best years ever with the Twins. Um, the, the Nolans, I mean, going 270, 30, and 90, I could see all three of those guys. Goldie's probably more of like a 25 homer guy, to be fair. Uh, three I don't know. He tickets. runs yes. into him. He could run into Yeah, he runs. does. What, what did he have? Okay, Goldie, what did he have the last couple of years? I know he had 36 the one year with the Diamondbacks. I'll look yeah. that up. You can go ahead and respond while I look that up. Well, what's the question? Is there a question or is it just more it's of more a It's more of a statement. It was more of a, an, it was more of a very positive statement of Luke McGill thinking the Cardinals are going to be pretty dang good this year. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and, and for Goldie, he hit 25 this past year. His MVP year was only 2022, two years ago. Uh, he hit 35 home runs, had 115 RBIs. I don't really care about his batting average. I, I'm more, you know, what's the on-base, what's the slug going to be? He went from a 981 OPS to 810. I think you need him back around 875 or more, and you could feel pretty good about that. Arenado, I think, was actually sub 800 this past year. He needs to be closer to 850 again. I look at OPS more so than batting average if you're just trying to give, like, one simple stat because, eh, does this guy get on base? Does he slug? Combine him. What's that look like? 850 for Arenado feels like a good goal. I don't think Carpenter has that kind of year. Like, of all the things that were were kind of mentioned there by Luke, I think that's the one where I would pump the brakes on. I could see Sejaci having a, another great start to AAA and then the Cardinals by midseason saying, eh, you know, when there's an injury, somebody goes on the 15-day, Gorman's back, you know, he needs a he needs a quick IL stint. Sejaci comes up and maybe just stays the rest of the way if he performs. Like, I could see that as somewhat plausible. Let me ask you about the starting pitching angle on that. You kind of mentioned maybe a step back for Gray compared to what he just did, but that's still pretty good because he was a yep. Cy Young candidate in the AL. Let me compare Lynn with Gibson. To, who has the, who has the higher upside to you for for what you expect this coming season? But does that same guy also have the higher floor? Because I would say one's got the floor, but one's got the upside, and they're different. So I'm guessing you're saying that Gibson's floor is higher and Lance Lynn's ceiling is higher. And I also think coming off last year, Lance Lynn was was so bad, especially with the White Sox, that if he cleans a, a few things up, it's not difficult for Lance Lynn to have a much better year. Now, with Kyle Gibson, I'm not going to focus on the win-loss record, which was really good. I'll, I'll focus with pitchers more on ERA and innings. I think Kyle Gibson will probably have a similar year, maybe not as many wins. I think Lance Lynn could have a much better year. Still a lot of strikeouts, but bringing that ERA down to the to the to the four type range, hopefully. And if it's four and a half, whatever. I could just see him having a nice bounce back year, not giving up nearly as many home runs at Bush Stadium. And he still struck out more than a batter per inning last year. Now a lot of that did come with the White Sox. It's kind of weird. And it was a question I asked him at winter warm-up because I was curious about the switch. Like did the Dodgers ask him to do some things differently because when you look his ERA was better with LA but he also hardly struck out anybody and I think they sort of you know from the answer he gave they sort of maybe had a track that they thought hey you could be successful here in the short term um, they, they just kind of wanted him to to get them through some innings because the Dodgers were having a lot of trouble with with their their rotation and, and injuries and that stuff so I think 
what you saw with the Dodgers isn't exactly who he's going to be this year. What you saw with the White Sox isn't exactly who he's going to be. But if he's able to sort of compile the best of both worlds, which is what he had done for many, many seasons prior, like he's never had a bad year like the one he just had. So if that was an anomaly and we can point to the White Sox just being an absolute, you know what? I mean, it was just terrible. Talked to the cat last week about this on, on Hot Take Central, where he said some things he heard about that Chicago team, and you kind of saw when he was trying to, you know, get an interview with Joe Kelly just to, over a, the course of a weekend, just saw it didn't look right. And so it would make a lot of sense that Lance Lynn has some upside to be like more than just people lump Gibson and Lynn in the same category, and I would make the case that they're not the same, even though they signed a similar contract. Lynn's got upside to to regain the status of like a number two or a number three. Gibson's going to be your number five, but I think you can rely upon him to do so. There's not a floor that's going to drop out on Gibson. He's been pretty steady over the course of his career. And so people know, I also like to cite FIP. With the White Sox, Lance Lynn's ERA was 6.47, but his FIP was 5.19. So almost a run and a half-ish lower. With the Dodgers, his ERA was 4.36, but his FIP was what? 6.16. 6.16. So some of those behind the scenes numbers were actually worse with the Dodgers, even though his ERA was better. When you basically throw them together, 5.73 ERA for the year and a 5.53 FIP, which is pretty, uh, pretty much the same. But again, I think he can drop that down a full run. So yes. maybe saying four, maybe four is too aggressive. I don't know. But if he's, I don't at, know if, if he's at four and a half, if his if his stats end on a quality start which is six innings, three runs earned, four and a half. Cardinals fans, I think, would love that if he can throw 180 innings. How important do you think the quality start is to the Cardinals this year? Because I know Ben Fred with the Post-Dispatch wrote an article where he sort of cited that. And it's always kind of the elephant in the room when you ask the Cardinals about it because you don't want – there are the factions of baseball fans who with particular stats, they look at it and they get a little bit fixated on it. And so to ask a member of the Cardinals, hey, how important is a quality start for you guys? All they would say, look, we don't look at how many quality starts did we log because it's kind of a random, like who decided that six innings and three or fewer runs is is what qualifies for this number. But like if you look at just the nature of what that would mean for the team, if they're getting more six and three type of performances from spots three, four, and five in their rotation, that I think would actually mean a lot to the Cardinals this year with the way that they're built. You kind of see that being, being the case for this year's team. Yeah. And by the way, so I don't have the numbers on this, but I, I listen to Bernie Miklas on five the fan a lot. And he's also been talking about this a lot and he's cited the numbers and it's not just with the Cardinals, but it's across major league baseball. So I don't have them exactly, but it's one of those things where your team win loss record is amazing when you get a quality start. And I think sometimes we focus on the quality start being, oh, it's six innings, three earned runs. But all of the great starts are also in there in the quality starts. So, and it also gets back to our conversation we had last year about Wayno. Look, if you're going six, even if you're allowing three, you're setting up your bullpen real nice, like to have that law firm of seven, eight, nine, whoever it is in a given year, to come in and do their roles. You're not asking for more. You're not asking for guys usually to go multiple innings. It's not just the six innings and three earned runs. It's you're in the game, you're pitching well, you're going pretty deep by today's standards, and you're allowing the bullpen guys to have nice, easy roles they can get used to. And I think that's why it matters. And it's not like a perfect 
overly analytical type of stat to just go, yeah, six and three feels about right for what we're going to call a quality start. And so that's why, you know, the new age baseball folk and the Cardinals, you know, they do look at analytics and things like that. So quality start is not something that they probably measure specifically and say, hey, we want this to be the goal that rack up as many as we can. But from like, take a step back, it's okay to take a, a, a more simplistic view and say, if you do those things, everything else does fall into place. So maybe it's not what they're chasing, but they signed the type of pitchers that are going to potentially be able to give them a good number of those things. So I think that it does, it, it's not like a predictive stat, but for this year's team, it feels like the way they're building themselves to do exactly what you said, take a little pressure off the bullpen, allow the guys that they use to have a chance to close out the game. And it can be in a win because if you've got the lineup that you think is going to be top 10, top eight, top five, you're probably getting the four runs in a game most of the time. And so you can win some four to three, five to four types of games that way. And that's the way they're kind of building themselves in like the best version of what happens this year. And here's a good example. I think you could see Giovanni Gallegos, who I actually think is underrated, even though he had a bad year last year, overall, he's been really good for the Cardinals. And I think with him, a lot of it comes down to usage. And I think Giovanni Gallegos will be much better and more like pre-2023 Geo, if he doesn't have to pitch as much. And if folks like Gibson and Lynn and Miles and Matt, whoever, if they can go deeper, let's just say that's a that's an appearance every two weeks, let's say, that Geo doesn't have to throw. That matters over the course of 162. It does. And and what's interesting too about that is we we talk about Ryan Helsley. And just attached to his name is just this reputation for, oh, he doesn't want to pitch as much. He doesn't want to go back to back and these things that I think sometimes he gets painted in an unfair light. Like the Cardinals maybe do need more consistency from him or durability from him, but that's sort of the narrative that surrounds him. But Geo is the type that like, yeah, I'll take the ball every day. And sometimes I'll get whacked because of it. But like now people say, oh, Geo stinks because his ERA is higher and it's the same thing. It's just two two sides of the same coin, and everybody's going to look better if they aren't needing to go to those guys with such frequency. And and it, and it has a trickle-down effect on the bullpen, too, because if you're getting through six instead of four, whoever that guy is that would have to eat up the meaningless middle innings of a game, that guy's now going to be available the next day, too, and maybe more of a, of a leveragey role, and you it just makes everybody better. And I think that's the way the Cardinals are building themselves. Whether it will work, we're going to have to find out, but it, like that's their plan. That's the process of how they see it playing out in a perfect world. Okay, moving on here. Let's see. Johnny McLean asks on Twitter, where is the offense going to come from? The outfield is stacking up to be below average. Win will be glove first, and Donnie has to prove he's healthy. Plus, Arenado and Goldie are on the wrong side of 30 and coming off down years. Okay, I'll just say before I throw to you, this is the second – winter in a row where I'm telling people I'm not worried about the offense. I'm just not, I'm not worried about the offense. I think the offense, it was, it was trending decent last year. It ended up with poor numbers. You also had a lot of down years and injuries. I think the Cardinals will have a top 10 ish offense. If you're looking at OPS, which is a number we both look at. I'm not worried about the offense personally, but what do you think about what Johnny McLean said? And I think it's interesting too, when you look at last year, like the cumulative numbers aren't going to look that good because they had a full month at the end where if you had a hangnail, you were on the IL to end the year. Like they, the, the guys they had running out to help accumulate those numbers the last few weeks are not going to be contributing to this year's team. So I think the offense can be okay too, but let's kind of lay out why we might think that when you look at the corners, start with 
Goldie and Arenado better or worse than last year for those two guys, or maybe about the same as my cat and joins the show in the background. I love it. Um, I would say Goldie for sure. Better. Um, I have to look at Arenado's numbers. See, I his numbers are bad. I think he'll be better. Yeah. I think Nolan will think be better. I think they'll both be, let's just say five to 15% better. Ish. I think that's fair. Arenado finished with a 774 OPS outside of the COVID year, which was his final year with the Rockies. That's the lowest year of his career going back to his rookie year when he was lower. Like, I think Arenado kind of got swept up a little bit in the pressure of we got to win five games today so we can make it up in the standings. He, he constantly said he wasn't looking at the standings and yet always knew exactly where the Cardinals were in the standings. So I feel like he put a lot of pressure on himself. And and felt like he had to be the guy to do it all. And that weighed on him. He didn't hit a home run, what, like one home run the last month and a half or something. He really kind of fell off the pace. I think he'll be a renewed guy uh, in a renewed clubhouse this year. Um, mentioned Donovan, but let me go where I think it's interesting. Jordan Walker, you think he goes up this year? I think he does naturally because he is was a rookie last year and he gets a little better. Newt Barr. What do you think he does compared to last year? I think you can expect about the same, but there's maybe some room for growth as well. Yeah, and and by the way, so I, I think Arenado, yeah, like a ten percent. He was a one hundred nine OPS uh, plus, and this is where too, like sometimes I forget. Goldie's OPS was one twenty, so that was better than I OPS plus. OPS I plus, say, yeah, was better. So here's here's a good good deal. This is where it helps because I don't have a good memory. I was doing a video the other day about about WAR, and this believe me, I'm going to answer your question. I was going through the players, and I was kind of thinking in my head, what kind of year did they have? What was their WAR? It surprised me. Lars Newtbar's war last year was 3.3, Brendan. And he played 117 games. So he basically missed 25% of the season and still put up a 3.3 war, which obviously is, is you as a total baseball player. But I think that speaks to his potential. His career OPS plus is 116. So Lars Newtbar had a better year than you even thought, I think, perception-wise for most people last year, and he was hurt. So I think there's a lot of upside there. If he just stays healthy and he's the same player, that's a hell of a player. Yeah, but now we so far we've given optimistic views on the two corner outfielders, the two corner infielders. I think Wilson will be about the same guy offensively behind the play. Like he was good last year. I think there's Wilson will probably be good again. A little streaky at times, but he can carry you. Up the middle is where I think it gets interesting. And I've gotten a lot of questions about this. If they're playing as Edmund in center and win at short, who hit 150 when he got a chance last year, what does that look like in terms of can they carry those two guys offensively if everybody else doesn't take a huge step forward? Like, does that become a chasm at the bottom of the lineup? Or do you think Tommy Edmund can be about league average, which is what he's always been on OPS plus? And then what's Mason Wynn do? Those are the two guys that I think offensively, I don't like defensively, I think they'll both do their role. But if they're eight and nine in the lineup, is that enough? Can the lineup have enough? What do you kind of see from those two offensively? So as you said, Tommy Edmonds' career OPS plus is right there at 100. He was yeah. 91 last year. Let's just say league average, 95, whatever it is, 100. Okay, you can deal with that center fielder, even though I don't love the fact he is your center fielder. I think it's fair to say Mason Wynn is probably going to be below average in his first year. First full-time year in the bigs, although I think he'll be better as his career progresses. But let's just look at it like that. Is it fair to say from an OPS plus standpoint, those are probably the only Cardinals we would think, unless something crazy happens, that aren't above average? I I'm telling you, may maybe I'm wrong. I'll be proven wrong. I don't know. 
on paper, I really like the Cardinals position players. I really liked them last year. And I like them again. And I think there's a lot of upside for guys. I'm not even mentioning Dylan Carlson. Right. I don't even, you, you might get something out of him. But again, Brendan Donovan is good, man, if he stays really healthy. Good. Lars Newbar is good if he can stay healthy. Jordan Walker did some nice things offensively in his first year, and he was yo-yoed up and down. Mason Wynn, I'm going to give him a year, but he can steal bases. He can hit doubles. He can hit triples. And we're just talking about offense. Goldie and Arenado, even in their down years, are probably going to be 105, 110 OPS plus. If Gorman stays healthy, there's a lot of ifs here, but we didn't but even man, say his name yet. Nolan Gorman, the one guy the that thing. could probably hit 40. Like he could hit 40, and that's not even crazy. He just I know the back is barking, and that's a thing. But I love the Cardinals core of young position players. So I'm not going to be one of those guys. I, I think the Cardinals are going to find a lot of offense. And I want to make a comment about Brendan Donovan. He had the 115 OPS plus last year. He's 120 OPS plus in the 839 plate appearances that he's had as a big leaguer. His power went up a little bit. His slug and OBP for his career are neck and neck. But I think he can show a little more power if he's healthy through the full season. Brendan Donovan is the type of guy that works. I think he's going to continue to get better and to exploit the adjustments that pitchers are making to him. He's a really smart, savvy player. But even what Brendan Donovan has been so far is a 20% above league average offensive player. Oh, and he can play anywhere and, and kind of hold the fort down almost no matter where you put him defensively. That's a really valuable player as well. In strikeout-wise, he struck out 123 times in his career. That's 839 plate appearances. And last year... You had Goldschmidt and Gorman strike out for way more than that in just one season. Contreras was at 111. Like he's striking out in almost two years the amount that some guys do in one. He, Brendan Donovan is a, is going to be a huge factor. And honestly, Charlie, I don't know how you feel about this. I would lead him off. I almost don't care what your left, right, left, right is behind him. Uh, he would be my leadoff guy because I think Newt provides a little more power, get him toward the middle. I would lead off Brendan Donovan, and I think they're going to have a nice table setter if they do that. Yeah, I think you'll mix and match, but I'm good with that for sure. Okay, so I like this next question. It's a different type of question. We're just going to bounce around. I'm just kind of going uh, basically reverse chronological order. Will This is from Iceman. Will the Cardinals ever pay full market value for a free agent ever again? The last one was Holiday, and they got a deal on it. And I think it's fair to say, and I agree with Iceman, I think he's thinking about a, a true free agent who's hitting around the normal time of 29, 30, 31, that you have to give a long deal because Sonny Gray is older. I like the Sonny Gray deal, but I do think that's different than signing a Jordan Montgomery or a Blake Snell or a Matt Holiday back in the day. What do you think of that? Because I know they tried with they tried to re-sign Jason Hayward. You tried to sign David Price, but the Cardinals really haven't done that. Am I wrong? Have they done the seven-year deal with anybody that wasn't in-house since I, holiday? Not, not like a seven-year deal. I mean, Wilson's was five. But I think yeah. when, when the Contreras deal happened, we knew they needed a catcher. He was already over 30. And it, my expectation was like, they'll try to do like a four years, 77. And they basically almost got the fifth year for free from like what I thought was going to happen. They got a fifth year and it was barely more than I thought they'd have to pay him for four. And so, you know, that was another deal. The answer is no, like it's, it'd have to be a really rare case to me to see the Cardinals do the type of deal on a free agent that is, is on that level of that caliber. It almost has to be like, there are baked in attributes to the player 
of, well, does he want to be a Cardinal? Is there, is there a history that we can really feel good about? Like they're very selective when they spend money on outside players. And even the Goldie and Arenado trades, that was going to lead to a commitment of a lot of money. But those guys, didn't they feel like Cardinals before they got here? So it almost needs to be that type of guy, in my opinion, before they'll ever do it. Like Blake Snell right now, I can't explain to you why he doesn't feel like a Cardinal guy, but he doesn't kind of feel like a Cardinal guy. And so I don't see them dropping 130, 150 million on him. Yeah, that is funny about feels like a Cardinal guy. And once you mentioned, yeah, once you mentioned Wilson Contreras, I think it's fair to say that that was a fair or even above market deal for a catcher. Because I do think you have to look at the catching position a little bit differently. There's not a lot of teams given a catcher that's about 30 seven years. So I think it's fair to say that five years and 87 and a half for a catcher, that that's the biggest deal Wilson Contreras was going to get. Let's be real. I think so. Yeah. And so like to answer that question, it's all going to be contextual to the position and to who the guy is, but they're, they just don't feel like the team that's going to go out in the market in a given year and say like, Oh, this is the marquee free agent of the year. Let's go get him regardless of who he is or, you know, it, it, it has to be a very specific set of circumstances before we really envision the Cardinals going in on a guy. Okay, I like this next question here. So here it is. It is from Vance Lloyd. With the first month's worth of games being as tough as it is, what record will be acceptable to be considered successful? And I will give you the schedule. As you were talking, I wanted to make sure I can bring the schedule up. So here it is. So folks, no. Starting four at the Dodgers. Three, and, and when we say month, that starts in March, but we'll go the first month. So four at the Dodgers, three at the Padres, three at home versus the Marlins, three at home versus the Phillies, three at the Diamondbacks. Then you get the A's, the crappy A's at the A's for three. You get home to the Brewers for three. You get home to the D-backs for three. You get at the Mets for three. And then basically we'll we'll consider the Tigers the last series, even though it, it overlaps into May, but then you get at the Detroit Tigers to finish off April and to begin May right there. That's a pretty dang tough schedule. Yes. It's, I mean, 500, is that okay? Is a, is a 500 first month okay, yes. given where the schedule is? I would say that it is as well. Some of those teams, I mean, you get the, the D-backs, did they not just make the World Series? You play them six times in the first month. And, and then I guess you probably don't play them again. So that's maybe the benefit there is getting it out of the way the schedule should ease up, but what happens is, or I should say what happens if you have all these games against teams that were really good last year, and then the season kind of chugs along. And then the teams that weren't so good last year sort of find their footing. And now games against like the pirates and reds later on, maybe that's not so easy this time around. Like it could be kind of a tough way for the schedule to shake, shake out this year for the Cardinals. Yeah. And let's look at it this way. You like to gamble. Let's just say on paper, Let's say on paper, should the Cardinals be favored in a series? And let's just go through real quick. I think okay. it's fair to say they wouldn't be favored. And, and you can go after me. I think it's fair to say they wouldn't be favored against the Dodgers. I would say Padres is a toss-up series. I would say Marlins toss-up-ish, but I'll lean Cardinals. I would say Phillies, the Phillies would be favored. This is just kind of like a big picture thing. At Diamondbacks. I think it's toss-up E, but I'll, I'll, I'll basically, because the Diamondbacks finished so strong last year, I'm going to lean towards the Diamondbacks in that one. You're clearly favored against the A's. Brewers, I think, is a toss-up type series. Uh, back to the Diamondbacks. Mets are a team that are kind of like the Padres, kind of like the Cardinals, I think. 
were crap last year, should be better this year. I think that's a toss-up E-series. And I'll just go ahead and say that the Cardinals are going to be favored against the Tigers, even though I think the Tigers will be better. But that's a lot of toss-up series. And then you got to start with the Dodgers, who should be a juggernaut. But then, look, the Cardinals are going to have to try to win two out of three of a lot of tough series there in the first month. They are, and I think that Dodgers series is really interesting. Like, if you can split, because that's a four-game series, it feels a lot different to come out of the gates against Yamamoto, he'll pitch, against Otani, he'll hit in every game. It feels a lot different, I think, for the Cardinals, who started so bad last year, and we've made so much about that bad start and how it impacted what they did thereafter. If they could split that series, I think you just kind of can go sigh of relief head on to San Diego and move on with your season. If it starts out one and three or zero oh and four, I don't know that I'm not saying that's going to tank the, the whole thing, but that's going to, they're going to be the little rumblings of like, Oh man, is this here we go again? Like if they can go out and split with the Dodgers, I think that would mean quite a lot, but I agree with you. The only series that I, I really see that, Hey, you should be able to dominate the series is Oakland. And you know, who knows how, how they're going to be You're probably bad again. Right. But they may not be the same team that they were last year. Maybe they're plucky. Maybe they, you know, make it a little bit difficult on you. Um, those Phillies and D-backs kind of series this early in the year, teams that, you know, they they had good years last year, but I think they're both hungry for more. Philly is still hungry to say, man, can we get this World Series thing? Can we make this happen this year? And the D-backs got a taste of it, so they're going to be, you know, hot to trot, trying to make things happen. So it's a tough start. It really is. And so I would say 500, even a game below, I don't know exactly if they that's 31 games we named or whatever it is, but if you're like in that around hovering 500 position i think that would be honestly good enough i don't know how cardinals fans will feel on on may 1st if that's what it is but i honestly think that would be okay all right from patriot sub vet how much coordination slash feedback slash info shares happening between cards players outside of the organization hitting programs and turner ward i don't know a ton about this but i do know you see all these guys arenado goalie newt bar over the years going to drive line hell you even see look Matt Holiday has become his own, you know, it's funny on the radio. I called him a hitting guru. He said he didn't like the word guru. Okay. But clearly, clearly, whether it's Joey Gallo, Matt Carpenter, his sons, a lot of folks, a lot of big leaguers and young prospects are going over to uh, Stillwater, Oklahoma to hit in their amazing hitting barn. So I think a lot of guys have their own hitting guys, uh, you know, guys they came up with, guys back at home. Uh, but go ahead. From like a hitting strategy, it's hard to answer the question, but I I can say from like a, hey, this season matters, let's make this thing happen this year perspective, I think that's happening. Like they talked a lot about the grip text chains that are kind of going off throughout the offseason of of putting everybody in the mindset of let's not let last year happen again. Like I think there is a motivation and a hunger to the group. Now, is that an easy thing to say at a winter warm-up? Yeah, you don't need to get too carried away with it, but I do think that there's some truth to it as far as how the players are viewing it Last year wasn't fun for anybody in the pro like the, the heavy part of it was that you knew early on, even if you couldn't say it publicly, they all knew early on, like, this is going to be what it is, isn't it? And like, it's never really been this for St. Louis Cardinals. So uh, we're all kind of reckoning with that in our own way privately. I think it was hard on a lot of guys. And I think there is reason to believe that it can be different this year. And that I, I think guys are communicating in that way. Now, as far as like, who's communicating with whom about what hitting strategy. That's kind of hard to say, but I, but I think it's a fair question. And, and as you mentioned, guys do kind of go outside and, and get perspectives and that's probably a healthy, good thing. It's not a knock on necessarily the coaching staff to do so. 
and I'm I'm joking, but it is such a winter warm up y response. Like, we're going to win this year because our group text is so active. I, we love I wanted each to, other. I wanted to say it before because I knew it would be the comment. I knew it would be your comment. So, like, I hear yes. how it sounds too, but that for whatever it's worth to you, that's what's going on. I know, and I'm just kidding. Okay. So, Omaha is coming wants me to ask you about Brock Purdy and Kyle Shanahan, but I'm going to move on just because I want to stick to baseball. But, Omaha, I did see your, your question. Here's a fun one. Tyler, who's the best Cardinals position player pitcher ever? Anyone ever pitched more than just once or twice? Jed Jerko comes to mind. For me, early on, I feel like Aaron Miles was the guy. He did it a lot, didn't he? Yeah, he used to do it quite a bit. I don't remember, like, how effective he was, but they did keep going back to him. But was that because he, like, with a lot of guys, it was interesting at winter warm-up, people were asking Mason Wynn, because he came out, like, officially out of the draft in high school. He was going to do the, the pitcher slash shortstop thing. And then it very, very quickly died and never to be revisited again. And he even said, like, if I were called upon to, it would, I'd be the last person we would use as a pitcher. I wouldn't do it in a game. And I, is it almost like the guys that don't have the, the marquee throwing arms, that's almost who you use because it is obviously a, a spot that doesn't matter in a game that's been decided. We actually saw the Cardinals do it in a winning effort with guys like Yachty and Albert, but, um, I, maybe that's the reason that Aaron Miles, because he didn't maybe have the strongest throwing arm that you were worried about jeopardizing in some form or fashion. I was trying to find his pitching numbers on on Baseball Reference, but I I haven't I haven't been able to locate that. So I don't know. Maybe Aaron Miles would be the answer, Charlie. But yeah, how about like you said, just go maybe uh, Mason Wynn jumps out there and he throws ninety seven, and it. then all of a sudden, hey, you're going back to a two way player. They'll never do that because They'll of never. that. Exactly, and because <clears throat> they don't want to. It's just. It's a mindset thing, right? Like it's when Ricky Inkiel was an outfielder, it's like, no, he stopped the pitching thing for a reason at the time. It, they're not going to try and toe that line with guys, but maybe Burleson can be the, can be the guy kind of moving forward. I did find Aaron miles did it uh, three times, three total uh, appearances, five total innings. Uh, no, pardon me, five innings, five games and gave up two earned runs. So pretty good ERA. I think he, I think he made all right here. I'll take that. Okay, Dalton M. Thompson has a fantasy trade request for your league. I'm going to skip that Stop one. Stop it. But his top question is, and it's a good one, is there a record that the Cardinals could reach at the trade deadline that would permit them to spend, or is it strictly a feel thing for Mo? I'll go first. I think I think it's, it's basically the opposite of last year. It's the previous two years, and I'm a broken record, but it's – it's uh, what twenty one, twenty two when they get uh, Lester and Hap and LeBlanc before that, and then it's the following year when they get Quintana and Montgomery. Especially coming off a crap year, to me, all the Cardinals have to do is be around five hundred. If they are in striking distance, if they're five games out at the deadline, I do think they'll probably have to add. Let's be real; they'll probably have to add a starter and a reliever. Somebody will be hurt or bad. They'll need a reliever. I do think they'll do that at the deadline. I do think the Cardinals will be in the spot to do that. I think so too. And and I hate the payroll conversation is always a tricky one because everybody thinks they know what it currently is and nobody really does because like it's always calculated different and oh, well, there's this, that's the deferral and there's constant arguments about it on Twitter to where I'm just like, I don't even care. But I think that with what they said they would be willing to spend, and what they have spent, it has left the room to do more if more is necessary. Um, so I think if they're in contention, even if they're like having a great year and they're in first place and everything's great, I still think they'll add because they'll sense that, okay, there's room to really maybe make some noise. Everything has gone to plan and we can supplement 
from that. So yeah, I think if they're in the mix, the the minimum is kind of that Jay Hap tier where they trade a guy like Lane Thomas at the time. I think he was the Lester deal, but they trade a guy who at the time they were like, yeah, he doesn't have a spot here. So let's get somebody we'll actually use. And I know that Lane Thomas has gone on to be very serviceable for the, for the nationals, but like that's sort of the type of floor that I think you set. And then pending injuries or what team needs might be, they could do something bigger. I think if, they felt it would help them. I think the payroll does set up to allow for that. I have to say, just because, and this is a, you know, I love my guy, Jimmy the Cat Hayes, but this is a semantics. When you said serviceable, to me, that's a slight. I think Lane Thomas is pretty dang good. I have to check because, again, my memory's not that great. That's some last good year, Lane, Lane Thomas, career OPS plus 108. Last year, he was 114. So I think it's fair to say, look, we're giving props to guys like, Newt Barr and Donovan and whoever, Lane Thomas is pretty dang good. Yeah, I mean, he's got a 112 OPS plus with the Nationals over the course of three years, which is uh, still below Brendan Donovan and Newt Barr, the guys we've talked about for their careers. However, uh, yeah, Lane Thomas has been, let's put it this way, he's been worlds above what he was with the Cardinals in 2020 and 2021 when he looked like he had never seen a baseball field before. I think that COVID haze thing was real for him because I mean, he looked dreadful, and I was somebody that really liked Lane Thomas before that, but at the time, I was like, you can't possibly defend this. So, like, there's a whole conversation to be had about why the Cardinals don't get the most out of their guys, and then they go elsewhere and do well, but at the time when they traded him for for Lester, I think it was, you can't say that at the time that wasn't the deal that made sense for the way the club was structured, um, but Lane Thomas, I'm, I'm so sorry for using serviceable. He's been good with Washington and, uh, you know, a guy that's that's stuck around. I mean, he's going to continue to stick around. Is, but when I, I almost say serviceable because, like, we know the Washington Nationals are bad and they expect to be bad, and that's been, like, the case the whole time he's been there. So it's easier for a team like that to give runs to Lane Thomas and say, we see raw materials here. Let's see what it looks like in 500 plate appearances. It's always like the teams that get a chance to do that with guys that the Cardinals send them there and then they look good. That's like the constant change of scenery conversation that happens. I think it can be a real thing for guys. And for him, it certainly was. Yeah. And I was half kidding, obviously about the service. Well, but I will say this on the topic, the Cardinals have been so bad at trading away the good outfielders and keeping let's, let's be real, the wrong ones that they've also lost the benefit of the doubt on this topic. And it's funny. It's like, we always talk about change of scenery, but it's also a lot of guys that didn't get, very much opportunity. Now, you know, we started this conversation about Lane Thomas, but you can go back to Randy Rosarena, no real opportunity. Lane Thomas got rocked by COVID. That messed that messed up his career for a, yeah. a solid year, year and a half. So it's kind of different. But again, to me, I mean, that's why I expect Tyler O'Neill to hit 35 bombs this year. Like it doesn't matter until you until you switch the trend. Here's a maybe good analogy. I was working in Michigan when the Lions drafted the wrong wide receiver 86 straight years <laughs> until they until they did it again with Calvin Johnson and they got it right. Until the Cardinals actually don't let an outfielder leave who becomes really, really good, they've lost the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and I think that's a fair characterization, and I don't know what the answer is. Like I said, there's a conversation to be had. Why can't they get the most out of these guys? Because sometimes when they're trading them away, a Rosarena, not a good example, because he, like you said, never got a chance here. But like with Elaine Thomas, we we saw it play out. With Tyler O'Neill this past year, we saw it play out, and it absolutely did not work. So it's kind of interesting. It's not just the guys that 
they they should have given a chance to but never found time to do so. It's also the ones that they let play out and then they let play out for another year and it was still bad that then go somewhere else and are good. Why that is, I don't know, but I think you're right that th- that is a trend at this point and one that you do sort of just expect to come to fruition. And by the way, I don't I don't think it hurts Tyler O'Neill that he's a power hitter from the right side and he's got that wall at Fenway. He's going to hit balls over that wall and probably put some holes in that wall with the power that he has. He's a good fit for that ballpark and he'll probably be good there. And by the way, before we move on here quick, I'm going to throw Dylan Carlson in that bucket because he's another, it looks like outfielder that there's a very good chance they were wrong on where you do go to a guy like him opposed to some of these other prospects that you maybe traded away. You're banking on him. He's now your fourth outfielder. Can he can he perform beyond that? Sure. But he has to prove it. But there's another guy where right now, at, at this point in his career, it looks like they kept him too long and he has almost no trade value. And that's probably right. And that's But that is also what happened to O'Neal. And yet we see more upside with O'Neal because the power has been there. For Carlson, it's not really been, you know, the, the hitting against right-handed pitching has sort of been the bugaboo for Dylan Carlson. And he did come up so young to where maybe he's still developing and and figuring out how to do that at the big league level. But it's going to be a tough road to hoe for him this year simply because we don't really expect him to be granted the playing time and the runway to be able to work through some of those issues. He feels like the primary type of guy that should probably go somewhere else like a Nationals where they could put him in center field for, you know, 140 games and see what happens. Granted, he hasn't been healthy enough to do that for the Cardinals when they've wanted to in the past. So it is always kind of a double-edged sword with that. But he's one that I'll be curious to see how it plays out. Because again, if if Tyler O'Neill had the arm's length thing with Ollie, and part of that was like getting thrown under the bus, but part of it was like, are, are you an everyday guy? What are you to this team? And kind of feeling the weight of that. Is Dylan going to feel that same weight with Ollie this year? And will that allow him to spread his wings the way he needs to? Probably remains to be seen. So it could be that Dylan Carlson after this year doesn't go well, goes somewhere else, revives his career, or maybe he goes somewhere else. And they traded Steven Piscotty under very different circumstances because of the, the family situation for him. And that was a solid that the Cardinals did for the Piscotty family. But like he sort of kind of fizzled out after he he's not one that you say, oh man, he got away from a baseball perspective. It, is Dylan Carlson going to maybe kind of go that way or the way of Elaine Thomas, I think will be interesting to see. But we it's almost like a foregone conclusion that he doesn't necessarily feel long for this team, but he also hasn't got the trade value right now to move. That's kind of the way I would look at it for Dylan. And I hope I'm wrong. I hope he's great with the Cardinals and stays. But, you know, the writing on the wall right now doesn't look as favorable when they're baking him in as the fourth outfielder to start the year. That's never a good sign. Yeah, and it goes one of two ways probably. He either has the bad year and then literally his trade value is zero or he has the good year and the Cardinals keep him. That's probably the way it's going to go. Okay. So next question is, or comment, Jaden Radford says the starting rotation doesn't blow me away. Like I had hoped. And I think that's fair because before the season started the off season, I said, the Cardinals need two pitchers better than miles. Michaelis. I don't think they've done that on paper. They got one in sunny gray. They got two back end guys in Lynn and Gibson. I've said this 5,000 times. So to me, they didn't do, I wanted the trade for the high upside guy or the whoever the hell, the Logan Gilbert cease. Maybe you could say it's a pipe dream. I think the Cardinals starting rotation will be okay, but I did expect more. Yeah, and those deals are hard to make. They're hard to stomach, first of all, because you're going to trade away some of those really good hitters we talked about. They'd never trade Newt Bar. That's a non-starter. 
I have told people the whole way through, so is Brendan Donovan. He's a non-starter. I don't know if I get a sense for how they feel on Gorman. I think they might have done it if if it were on the table for them to get a Cease or a Gilbert by trading Gorman and maybe a, a pitching prospect, whether it's Tinkhans or Graceffo or whoever it might be. I think the Cardinals might have been willing to do that. I don't know that. And again, I don't know this for a fact that Mo could hear this and say, no, he's full of crap. And he would be right and I'd be wrong. But I think that would be the type of move that would have been required to get one of those big time pitching guys who also didn't get traded. Like, again, the teams did not trade those players. So it tells you they were probably asking for quite a bit for them. And that's why it doesn't come to fruition. And so the Cardinals sensing that that might be the case, like, let's say they played out the whole offseason and went down that path. and you do get Blake Snell and Montgomery signed by now because most people would have predicted that they would have signed by now. And the Cardinals missed out on Lynn and Gibson, who they kind of had an eye on, and they couldn't make the trade they wanted to make. Now you're kind of like, uh-oh. And I think the last thing they wanted is to end up in uh-oh territory when it comes to this rotation. So they built the bottom of it out and tried to build up from there and got Sonny Gray through that process. I just think it was the the simpler, easier path, and it was the one that, involved less risk for them completely missing out on some of their targets. Okay. So we have a ton more questions. Yeah, so I think we do. We can wrap up here after another one or two. And then if you want, we can next week. Are you going to spring training by the way? I will be at spring training, not by next week. Okay. We're, we're good on next Thursday, but after that I'll be, I'm heading out the Monday after the Super Bowl. I'm going to drive. So cool. Okay. So we can do more of these questions. There's so many. We're not going to get to all of them. Yeah. I was thinking about we release it in two in two parts anyway, but we'll just finish this one and we'll release it and then we'll do one next week. So this will be our last, I think, substantive baseball question. Maybe we'll end with a fun one, but I think it's a good big picture thought. It's from Liam. And he just says, I don't see how this roster is any better than last year's. It's a pretty simple question. What do you think? I mean, they had a terrible year last year on paper. Do you think the roster, is it the same as last year? Is it slightly better? Is it slightly worse? What do you think? I think it's better. I think the roster is better because I think for the guys that were bad or below their standard, like Goldie and Arenado, there's, unless you're subscribing to their cook because they're old, which I don't subscribe for either of those guys, then they should probably be better. The clubhouse is going to feel better because they're not behind the eight ball the whole season. Like, I think that was a real tangible thing that feels intangible because it's like, well, they're the same players. Why couldn't they just play better? The mood wasn't right. And you can blame whatever you want for it. I welcome fans to do it. Pick the thing you want to blame. Pick Ollie, pick Tyler, pick uh, Wilson, pick the pitchers that were whining to Wilson or about Wilson, pick Mosellock. Whatever makes you feel best, pick that and be convinced that that's what it was. And you can be right. It's irrelevant for what's about to happen in 2024, though. I look at the pitching specifically, and I do think that despite the fact that Montgomery was a good pitcher for them, and now they don't have him, I think you upgraded that spot by getting Sonny Gray. I think you upgraded by getting Gibson and Lynn instead of Flaherty and Wainwright, because Flaherty wasn't good last year, and he was probably a little bit of a drag on some of those things that were going on behind the scenes, right? So I think from that perspective, you're better and they have taken out guys like Hudson and Woodford who felt like they had a capped ceiling, like, oh my gosh, if they can get through five innings, three runs, you you survive that day and maybe you win a game. But they also had a floor that was we saw too many times. We also saw Steven Matz at his worst at the beginning of the year, and I feel like maybe that's what it is again. You get a mixed bag with Steven Matz. 
but like there's enough, I think, of stabilization to the rotation that it's better. Where it where it absolutely can go off the rails, Charlie, is if the plan to get those quality starts from the Michaelises and the the Gibson and the Lynn contingent, if one of those two of them get hurt, all right, is that is Zach Thompson going to be able to do 160 innings of of 30 starts? I don't know. And then who's behind him? So like that's where it could absolutely go off the rails. But I think they specifically designed to try and say like this is our rotation day one in February. And we think that there's a decent enough chance of it being our rotation day one of April because we got durable guys that we think can last. Whether that happens, I don't know. It has to for it to work, I'll admit that. And I think there's a better chance of it happening because they've got these grizzled vets that kind of know how to how to get through the rigors and know how it goes. That's what they're banking on this year. I don't know if it works, Charlie. That's their plan. But that, that would be my case for why it's better. Do you see it like I do or do you push back on it and say, dude, Guys get hurt in spring every year, and this is going to be a problem. This is interesting to me because I think the position player group is essentially the same. You're adding a young Mason Wynn, who I love big picture, but could be rocky offensively first year. I do think a lot of guys are going to be 5 to 10 to 15% better, which is huge if a lot of people do that. And you just get a little better health on the position player side. Bullpen, it seems like it's about the same ish. I do like, I do like Andrew Kittredge. Um, I do think adding the innings will help the bullpen, as I said earlier. But I think the rotation is the interesting piece. And uh, I, I think what you brought up is about Kyle Gibson and Jack Flaherty. For example, you said Flaherty didn't have a good year. I would push back and say, well, Jack Flaherty ended the year terribly with the Orioles as he's pushed to the bullpen. Now, Jack Flaherty with the Cardinals, were those numbers that much different than Kyle Gibson? If you look at their ERA and you look at their their fifth. So, and then remember, you're losing Monty, who was an absolute stud, yes. but you're also losing Wayno, who was one of the worst pitchers in the history of baseball yes. for a starting pitcher. Miles Michaelis should be better just because he couldn't have had a worse start for Miles Michaelis. So I don't know is is the answer. I think. If you just ask me, I do think the starting rotation is going to be better, but I don't know. I get why people don't agree. It's the way that I expect Kyle Gibson and Jack Flaherty to come by their numbers, to arrive at their FIP, to arrive at their ERAs that I think will be different. I don't know if that's a feel thing that Brendan Schaefer is subscribing to the party line or if there is reason to back that up. Um, because I look at Jack Flaherty's numbers and go, well, here, some of his worst starts were two innings, 10 runs, three innings, seven runs, four innings, six runs. You know, he had a number of those. Kyle Gibson kind of did too, right? So like Lance Lynn was not impervious to those types of outings. So maybe it's a case of like, we're building these guys up as, oh, they're going to be reliable and they're always going to get through five or six innings, even if they give up five runs. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's not a hundred percent the case, Charlie. And there's not as many differences from last year's team. Uh, it, it sounds good in the off season. It's one of those things that you say, Hey, they're going to, the ERAs, not all of them are created equal and they're going to be a, they're going to be a better team with a, a slight improvement to ERA because they're not going to be run out of as many games in the early innings. But I'm looking at Kyle Gibson from last year. He gave up nine in a start. He gave up seven in a start. Now he made it into the sixth and into the fifth in those outings, but you know, you're still probably losing those games and, and his team lost both of those games. So that's kind of fair. I, I think Lance Lynn is honestly a huge key to all of this, because if you view him as back end guy going to eat some innings, then yeah, maybe it's not going to be as, as, as rosy as the Cardinals would, would say if Lance Lynn has 
whatever he did in 2022, like I think it was sub four. I think it was like a 399 ERA. If Lance Lynn is a dog again, which maybe he will be, put him in Bush, don't give up as many homers, kind of be have a, a, a light a fire under him because he doesn't want to be the pitcher he was last year. He's got to almost be like better than Miles Michaelis, I think. And if that is the way it shakes out, Michaelis is like a solid three. He reverts back on the FIP a little bit to what he was in 2022, which was solid, gives you another 200 innings. And it's last year's gray with Lynn of old, or even of a year ago, like before 2023, with Michaelis being like a 4.3 ERA innings eater at the three spot. I don't know. That I think is absolutely better than having to run out Drew Rom for starts and Dakota Hudson for starts the way that they did last year. I could be wrong, but that's kind of where I see it is a little better. And I think the idea is that the clubhouse will be in a much better spot, but that also, how many games does that win you is a fair question for Cardinals fans to have. And it's, it's fun. we just talk about ERA. I think it's fair to say, like, if you really lay it out, you don't need much. If Sonny Gray can be in the threes, Okay, and, and not closer to four. Let's just say three if Sonny Gray's three and a half or below, and then if everybody else can be in the fours but not pushing five, right? And and that's possible. It's possible that at the end of the year, and maybe you say Kyle Gibson's four and a half, Lanson's four and a half, whatever. I'm just saying we don't we don't want it to be to close to five. But if Michaelis Matz, Lynn. And Kyle Gibson are all from a four ERA to four and a half. I think you're going to win a lot of a lot of baseball games. Yeah, because I think like a guy like Kittredge does help the bullpen. And what is he? Your fourth option behind Helsley and Gallegos and JoJo from the left side. And maybe one of what happened last year too that we don't talk a lot about. The Cardinals took the strategy of of bullpenning that I think they should have taken in the offseason prior to 2023, which is throw a bunch of mediocre, maybe problematic arms at it who haven't figured it out and see if a couple of them do. None of them did. They were all either hurt or bad or whatever the case was. None of that like dumpster diving on relievers worked like not one of them worked last year in this year. They're kind of doing it a little bit, but maybe Heim Bloom's helping out a little and maybe they, they're finding some better names, right? Like they're doing it again. They haven't spent up on any relievers necessarily, but they're getting guys in that bucket where like if a couple of them work out, then the bullpen does look better and they have an easier job if the rotation gets deeper into games and, and asks lesser of what the bullpen has to provide. So like that would be the path. And it's a, it's an, it's an aspect that's not talked about a lot because the bullpen thing is like, they didn't spend, they're doing basically what they did last year. But the, like, think about the guys that they had at spring training where you go, Hey, maybe Guillermo Zuniga. You're like, who he never was even a factor. And that's, that was everybody that they tried it with last year. I think they're doing it again, but with a little bit of a different flair and maybe it works differently than it did in 2023 that could matter too okay let's end on this one we have a million more questions we'll get to them more maybe do another one next week maybe i'll do one on my own maybe we'll do both of that what so here's the last question he's gonna take them oh, no. for himself i knew it no dude there's probably four hours worth of questions honestly so much love to the people on twitter i didn't even put out there on youtube we'd have got more on youtube so here we go thomas gavain who will replace tyler o'neill as the strongest cardinal now stubby clap isn't allowed to be an option. Now I'm not down there really at all. Like I used to be. So I'll just say from what I've seen, you know, who's a very underrated, real strong dude is miles. Michaels. He's, yeah. he's built dude. He's put yeah. together like a pitcher that can log 200 innings. So what do you think? 
do people think of Paul Goldschmidt as yoked? They should, is my point. Like, they I don't should. know, That's I don't know point. if they think of him that way, but they they should. That was going to be the other guy that I would bring up. Yeah, I'd like to see Miles Michaelis and Paul Goldschmidt arm wrestle, but maybe like left arms so that nobody's hurting their pitching arm or anything. But like those guys are those guys are some two strong strong dudes. I'm trying to think if there's anybody else that that should be jumping out to me that that doesn't immediately. Those are the two that I would I would have brought up Miles as well as as a guy who underrated strong guy for sure. And they're big also because you can yes. have a, a smaller guy who's wound real tight. Like like Harrison Bader wasn't the biggest dude, but he's he's a strong dude. But both Miles and Paul Goldschmidt are big-ass country strong dudes. Well, Harrison Bader was built too. He just wasn't a strong guy. or uh, Sorry, a tall guy. He wasn't like – That's what I'm saying. That's as Heidi. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, Goldie and Miles both pretty tall and pretty built. I think that's fair. So probably pretty strong dudes as well. And I won't on this one. I won't ask you the last question, which is from my guy Mike. Who's the hottest dude on the team? We'll oh, get to that, that was, one. Okay. Yeah, we'll get to that one next week. So we'll is wrap that up. YouTube We're after going. dark. I don't know when that one ends up. Yes, that's for okay. Skinamax After Dark YouTube special for subscribers only. And we'll uh, all wear underwear. Now you told me there was only one thing you wouldn't do for money on YouTube, and it kind of it geared toward that that area. So I don't know. I'm 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 skeptical of whether that one's ever going to see the light of day. Well, if I get in better shape, maybe. If I get in better well, shape, maybe. maybe I'll start stripping. All right. Yikes. Good times. Good times. Great oldies. Thank you, Brendan Schaefer. What's the name of this podcast? It's called Low Hanging Low Fruit. Hanging Fruit episode one. four. We'll come back next week and we got a ton of questions. So we'll we'll uh, get to almost all of them. Brendan, thank you as always, sir. And thank you for watching, folks. Comment, like, subscribe, share the channel, share the videos on social media in your group text for Cardinals fans, and we'll do it all year long. Brendan, great stuff, buddy. Appreciate the time. We had a, a wonderful time today. Yes, we did. And follow Brendan. What is it? Be Shafe Daily. No kidding. We gotta we gotta get this going in the early. I'm missing out on all the those viewers who click out when we start to just like talk about nothing. I'm missing out on the plugs. Uh, Be Shafe Daily. Brendan Schaefer YouTube is Brendan Schaefer, St. Louis Cardinals writer. If you just type in my name on YouTube, just subscribe to the channel because that would help too. And I gotta push back one more time. Okay. Oh, here we go. Because you said you said once we start talking about nothing, I thought I stopped this podcast at a good time, about 70 yeah. minutes before we really started talking about nothing. I actually thought it was pretty substantive baseball talk. Am I no, wrong? No, it, it was. But once people are like, hey, they're wrapping up, click, they're out of here. They're not hearing this at all. Maybe I'm wrong. No, you, they see are. The, you see the YouTube analytics better than I do. So uh, I don't know. Just subscribe to my thing too. We put it on Charlie's because he's got more people, but uh, I'll catch him like in 2027 or something. All right. Well, you can always invite me on yours. That's never happened. As, well, I could, I could, but we... You're a busy guy. I mean, you got a lot to get to. You've got a lot of irons in the fire, as they say. And we already talk once a week. So I still think that there will come a time where we take off with low-hanging fruit. And you're like, let's just do a second time per week. And that's when I that's when we really start to get it going. But we'll see. Right oh, now, it's not the time dude. because there's nothing to talk oh. about. Oh, during the season? Easy. We I think could so. do it almost every day for sure. Right now, there's nothing to talk about. All right, there's I'll none. shut up. We need to shut up. We need to end the show. This is what I always do. I should have ended it five minutes ago. But uh, people, like, people like this. That's what you always used to say on your show with uh, with with Martin. You know, people people really like this stuff. OK, maybe they do. That last that last mid roll ad always helps. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Brennan. See you guys later. Have a great weekend, everybody. See ya.